My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Need abrasives for your shop? Well, nobody knows abrasives better than Rob at Weber Abrasives. So be sure to visit webers.net.au the next time you're stocking up so that you're working with the best kit at the best prices. Yes, I, I would like to apologize in advance if you guys hear cricket noises in the background. That's uh, my my frog just recently took uh, took a uh, delivery of uh, adult crickets to eat, and he hasn't eaten all of them, and so some of them are making their uh, protests known. Just another episode of Sam's Menagerie on the Forgecast. <laughs> That's it, from chickens to crickets, and, and uh, I'm sure Wiley will eventually start motorbiking in the background <laughs> at some point he is a motorbike frog after all uh and for a while there i had a crow um which i named cecil i rescued him he was underneath my car one day um and for anyone who follows me on instagram they would have seen the uh the stories and stuff like that that i posted of him he's now in wildlife care uh thankfully he's he's all good but um yeah he stayed overnight in the chicken care unit so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, did, yeah. He give, did he give you a good Yelp review? Um, I'd, I'd say so, I hope so. I fed him. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Only the finest. <laughs> uh, what else have you been up to this week? Yeah, it's been a bit of a, bit of a mad week. I've been uh, preparing mostly this week for the uh, buoy competition that I released um, today as we're recording this, which is the Monday. Um and I, so I, I filmed a, you know, an announcement video and, uh, all that kind of stuff, laid out the parameters. Uh, I've been hinting at it for a week or so now and, uh, the response has been really great. I've, I'm really glad to see so many people getting in on it. Um, <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to seeing what people come out with. It was, uh, it's just so awesome to see uh, people really pushing themselves on, uh, on a competition like this. Um, <laughs> I've been assured by yourself that you're going to win oh yeah got something special planned yeah so i've heard so um yeah no i'm, I'm really looking forward to it um <laughs> no 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 uh no argument about nepotism here alex i'm sure will push through to make sure that there is no argument that's my plan i don't want anybody to think that i'm i've won based on my position on the forgecast <laughs> i want them to be absolutely certain that it was earned Yes, and I am. I will be a fair and even-handed judge because you know I, I'm that kind of person. But don't worry, guys. There's still two other places. That's it. And the second prize is something that a lot of people have coveted themselves. Um, I'm not going to lie. First I'm prize... not going to be upset if I win second place. <laughs> That's it. You know, I mean, the first prize being a uh, the full graving set is one thing, but so quite a few people have said that they wouldn't mind willing, winning one of my hammers. So uh, you know, there's mm. that as well. Uh, and the third prize being a set of graver blanks that you can turn into your own gravers if you want to take that route. Mm. Um, but yeah, other than that, I also did a how to forge video, which kind of went along with the uh, the buoy competition, which was how to forge a muso buoy, which is my favorite pattern of buoy. Hint, hint, uh, hint. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want everyone to start trying to make musos to impress me, though. I want them to come up with their own specific design. Um 
you know, I'm, I'm much more likely to reward someone who has taken the buoy and, like, made it theirs, uh, and done it well, than I am someone who's just made a muso purely because they think it'll impress me. Um, if you're gonna make a muso, it has to be really good muso. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, that took a lot of time because it was a 10 by 50, uh, or three-eighths by a two-inch piece of W2, uh, steel that I forged that out of. That's going to be a lot of fun to grind. Unfortunately, I can't grind any blades at the moment because I'm, uh, down my, uh, flat platen, the, um, the platen shattered, because I use ceramic glass platen. Um, so I have a new platen on, on order, but it's coming from South Australia, so i got to wait. What caused <laughs> it to shatter? Um, so I change it out with the, uh, the big 12 inch contact wheel and normally I'm very careful about where I put it. Um, but I put it down somewhere and I ended up stepping on the back of the platen, uh, uh, with my heel and it obviously, there was a piece of metal underneath it or something and just pressure flaked it. <laughs> Thought I heard uh, it, uh, somebody cursing off in the distance to the west. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Uh, yeah, you probably could have heard me for, uh, from a long way away. But, um, yeah, so that, that's fine. I've ordered two replacements so that I have a spare, um, so that if I ha- this happens again, I don't have to wait two weeks mm. to get another one. Um, but yeah, I also took, um, my, I also got my Versaflow helmet, which, mm. uh, I've been putting through its paces. I spent, uh, about four and a half hours grinding in it, uh, the other day, and it is it's just spectacular. It's it just grand. I always hated grinding. Like, grinding was just one of those things I really, really disliked. And now I don't mind it as much. <laughs> did, did you get that same thing that happened to me that I talked about in my review video about how your confidence goes up and because of oh, that, yeah, your, your quality of your grinds go up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I actually at one stage forgot that I was wearing the helmet. Yeah. And I went to put... I was grinding a sword blade and I went to put the sword blade up to my eye to look down the length of it and I just smacked it into the, <laughs> into the face shield. <laughs> and I went, oops. Um, but yeah, no, it's a fantastic, fantastic bit of kit. And uh, yeah, it's made grinding and, you know, that kind of thing much easier. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, many more grinding sessions wearing it, so... That's nice. I've also been working on a uh, Hema Cutlass blade. I got that all finished out, heat treated and stuff like that. I believe I spoke about that on the last episode, Yeah, if I'm not if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I, yeah, got that all heat treated and I took possession of a plasma cutter, uh, which was delivered to me the other day by a friend of mine, Ben Gordon. Um, and he, Most he actually fun contact- you can have without breaking the law. That's it. He um, he messaged me after I mentioned that I was looking for one uh, in a li- in a live stream because I wanted it to cut out uh, like um, bowl guards for cutlasses out of sheet steel, and I figured that was going to be the easiest way to do it rather than trying to cut it out with an angle grinder and then grind it with the belt grinder. And um, I thought it wasn't going to be that fast. And with my little with my little compressor, I was worried that it wouldn't run like that well. But holy crap, that thing zips through steel. Like, mm-hmm. you know, especially because I'm cutting through like two and a half mil steel. It's just, you know, I, as fast as I can move my hand, it's cutting. <laughs> it's great. The most fun uh, is when you're cutting thin stainless. Yeah. yeah. Like gas bottles and, and beer kegs and things like that. It's just amazing. <laughs> it cuts through it like paper. Yeah, yeah. It's insane. <laughs> Um, but yeah, even my little compressor was uh, able to keep up with it, which was great. So, um, you know, looking forward to many more hours using that as well for fun. Nice. Uh, I have I have plans to make um, 
cutlass uh, blades and, and full-formed cutlasses uh, for Hema out of uh, 5160, which I have some plates of. And one of the things that I wanted the plasma cutter for is cutting the blades out of those plates rather than forging or grinding them out of those plates instead. Mm. So it's going to increase my uh, productivity quite a bit as well, which is nice. Very nice. Yeah. But, um, yeah, my song of the week um, <laughs> is is a song that I used to dance to when I was a little kid because um, my mom was obsessed with, with this singer. And it's also because I've been listening to a lot of female country singers recently. Like, obviously, last week I, I, I had The Chicks as my uh, song of the week. Uh, and this week is another female country singer, Shania Twain. Uh, <laughs> and it's Man, I Feel Like a Woman. <laughs> and, like, I don't care how, like, masculine you think you are. When you hear the line drop of let's go girls you it's, know you have to go it's like, on it's, my country playlist <laughs> you can just it, you, you, you're going it doesn't matter if you're a girl or not you're going <laughs> uh, but yeah no, I, I love I love a lot of Shania's work and uh, yeah that is that is definitely one of my favourites so uh, has to go on the list mm-hmm. what have you been up to this week Alex? Uh, I knocked out a uh, Southpaw flipper liner lock flipper that thing is beautiful thanks it uh, i'm pretty happy with it because i did my my sort of my first ever liner lock and my first ever flipper uh, and gave it to my mate adam um a while back and um i had so many people message me saying are you gonna make more are you gonna make more are you gonna make more and one of the people who messaged me saying are you gonna make more it was actually somebody who has um bought a lot from me before he spent quite a few <laughs> quite a few shekels with me over the years he's he's um cut, been a collector of my knives and he's like i really want to get a flipper for my wife but the thing is she's a lefty and she can't <laughs> ever find liner locks for lefties yeah and, no they're not common and i said to him yeah they're, they're really rare i mean there are they do exist and they're out there but you've got to be pretty uh you know willing to accept what you get really and he's he's like, look, I know you don't do commissions and everything. In you know, I don't care what the design is, just do whatever the design is. But can it be if if you say you'll make it a lefty, I'll put money down now. And I'm like, <laughs> cool, I'll do it. And so I made a, a Southpaw, and um, it came out really nice. It's really awkward for me to use, but it it works. Yeah. But the the flip action on it is beautiful. It it looks great. It's um, Otway Fiddleback uh, from Ryan, as well as um, Western Australian She Oak, uh, mm. and it's got a the um, compound handles with a spacer of Mokimagane, nickel and copper Mokimagane. Yes, as as uh, <laughs> as dictated by Zane. <laughs> <laughs> And um, it, yeah, that, that worked really well. But um, never again am I putting Mokimagane in a compound handle. The heat <laughs> that it generates during shaping of the handle, even when filing on it, it gets hot. Yeah, right. It uh, gets hotter faster than just normal copper. I don't know what it is about the combination of the copper and nickel, but it's that the, you breathe on it funny and it heats up and the epoxy wants to release. Yeah, so. Right. It's, it's awful to use in a compound handle. But um, it, in the end, after quite a bit of battling with it, it came out, it came out really spectacular. I'm really happy with it. And um, it's actually going off to its owner tomorrow. 
Um, and he has to now sit on it for two months because it's a Christmas present. So, <laughs> <laughs> and and hopefully his wife doesn't listen to the Forgecast. <laughs> yeah, I don't know she doesn't, <laughs> which is good. That's good. Um, starting on a new ornate dagger build after the um, the fun I had with the last one, the heirloom dagger. Um, this next it's one, like a four foot dagger in it. <laughs> oh no, we'll, we'll get to that one. <laughs> um, I, I had I genuinely had a lot of fun making the heirloom dagger. Um, I blame Niels. Hashtag blame the black dragon. Yeah, that's but it. Hashtag blame the black dragon. I've got the dagger bug, and I can't I can't wait a whole year for another forty eight hour dagger challenge. So um, I'm, I'm going to make another ornate dagger, um, which already has a buyer. Funnily enough, based on oh, the based on the virtues of the um, the heirloom dagger, which is good. Um, we did some Broden and I did some testing of the big press that he he, he made a, a log splitter press out of an eighteen ton log splitter and it turned like a full unwelded stack billet twenty layer billet um, into like for uh, it was like thirty centimeter square bar mm-hmm. uh, in I think it was like forty minutes. Yep, that uh, extra tonnage and the speed really helps. <laughs> crazy and so. He's like, let's push it, and he made a uh, like an eight by eight basket weave mosaic billet um, mm. in a in a day, and it was a, a lazy day. So um, now he's it, just gonna tile it up and, and get the tile welds to stick. <laughs> yeah, well, I said, are you gonna do a fairy flip? And he's like, no, I'm gonna do an accordion um, opening up. So he's Ooh. gonna do that that those slits and round the corners and um, pull it out. But he needs to do that and still maintain an integral bolster. So mm-hmm. he's trying to reverse engineer that in his head at the moment, and he's going to be um, coming back on Friday to um, to have a bit of a experimentation with it, and hopefully not stuff it up. <laughs> yeah, fun times. Um, and uh, what else have I been doing? I've been preparing for your competition. Um, mm-hmm. I normally don't really plan projects. What I have got lined up needs planning. Yeah, to clarify, he didn't actually have the parameters before anyone else. He got the parameters at the same time as everyone same else. He just knew it was else. a buoy competition. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's just lucky that he w- fell within the parameters. Although I did leave them quite wide. for Very like, wide, yeah. For artistic um, interpretation. I want people mm-hmm. to be able to have fun. Uh, but this, this, this project that I've got planned for this is going to be by far the single most complex thing I've ever made uh, in my <laughs> knife-making career and it's going to take some planning so i've been i've been frantically doing sketches i've even involved cad software to try and mm. see see if it works um and try and get it to work and i think i think i worked it out um so the, the, some some planning work's been going on there I'm, I'm, i don't know how long i'll be able to sit on it before i start revealing what i'm doing or whether or not i should just keep it secret until it's done uh, <laughs> and then do the big reveal which is probably what I'm going to do in the end, just because oh, it's going to keep be, me waiting. <laughs> it's going to be one of the most impressive things I've ever made if I manage to pull it off. Oh, you will. I, I, I I'm confident in myself, as everyone knows. Um, but I'm I, there. There is a voice of doubt. <laughs> this is Always. this is this is complex. Um, nope. And speaking of the voice of doubt, uh, I started a musketeer rapier today. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, you were totally going to take some time off from swords. 
Well, yeah, uh, David Pinn actually hit me up about that. He's like, hey, hang on. I, was, I thought you said you were going to not, <laughs> not do another sword for a long time. And I said, well, you know, this is going to take a long time to do. So by the time it's done, it will have been a long time. Mm, um, true. I have wanted to make a musketeer rapier for a long time. And I actually spoke about that um, on an episode a long time ago. We were talking about dream projects. Mm. Um, and my two are a, um, a very traditional katana um, and an ornate katana, like a, a proper, properly done, full-blown katana, and a musketeer rapier, because my favourite movie as a kid is one of the greatest swashbuckling films of all time, Disney's Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. Uh, brilliant film, absolutely brilliant film, and I've been obsessed with the musketeer rapier since watching that film, even though it doesn't have the best depictions of musketeer rapiers in that film. Mm, yeah. Um, Funnily enough, the the dull, boring, uh, standard stock musketeer rapier that all of the other the plebeian actors have is actually probably the most realistic depiction of a musketeer rapier in that film. <laughs> but all of the yes. main all of the main characters have these ridiculous looking things. But um, no, I want I want to make one that's actually quite nice and ornate. I wanted I wanted a project that will let me push myself. Um, over an extended period and it's not for anyone uh, it will be up for sale but it's not it's not a commission uh, nobody's waiting for it nobody's sort of you know checking their watch and asking <laughs> me when it's going to be done like it's just just going to be me working I want to see what I can do uh, see whether or not I can do justice to one of my favorite um, iconic weapons of all time so um We'll see. We'll see what happens. I don't know where it's going to go or, or how far it's going to go, but I, I started it today. And boy, I made the mistake of forging it out of Sup 9. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good steal for, for what you're trying fen- to do. It's yeah. phenomenal steal for what I'm trying to do, but it's, it's oh, God. It's, it's hard to work, man. Even with the press, uh, I still had to forge the bevels in because um, I'm rough forging the bevels before heat treat. Um, yep nice thick edge on it uh, just so that I get that diamond profile so that the heat treat is much you know more likely to go well <laughs> mm-hmm. so um, and it's going to be done in a trench forge yeah old school <laughs> mm, very old school so um, oof man I will, warp city this is this is one that I will be documenting the, the build so excellent yeah you, you have YouTube videos maybe maybe i'll do the vlog style thing maybe not i've been really slack with youtube the last couple of months so I'm, i've got some, you and me both i've got some stuff in the works i just need to find the time um <laughs> <laughs> uh, my song of the week is um by a, a blues singer guy davis and hmm. the, the song is loneliest road that i know and he has the most spectacular blues voice it's like it sounds sounds like it was you know, he was um, unsuccessfully hanged at some point um, <laughs> and then had his voice box dragged behind a, a, an old car down a dirt road for a few miles and then put back Real in. gravelly. Oh, it's just just like, a, like he's had, you know, emphysema. <laughs> he's been smoking three packs a day since he was six. Um and he just he belts out this soulful, really soulful, passionate blues song, and you can feel the the blues that he has when he sings it. Um, mm. It's just such a unique voice that he has. 
Um, and if you like blues music, um, to, to sort of have that that vibe that it has, this is this is one of the most. Uh, I mean, I've talked about "Loan Me a Dime" by Boz Skaggs. He has quite a clean voice, uh, but still has that real soul behind it. Uh, Guy Davis has um, the sort of the opposite end of the vocal spectrum, but just as much soul. So definitely check that one out. Yeah. So. Yes. Cool. So, uh, do you want to do inspirations first this time? Yeah, why not? Who's been inspiring you? Um, well, it was suggested to me actually that I that I um, use this as an inspiration by yourself. <laughs> mm. uh, that comes as a total surprise to you, I'm sure. Um, but it's someone who I actually have been following for quite a long time. Uh, their work, I just hadn't realized that I hadn't followed their uh, their main account on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've seen their work everywhere, and most of our listeners will have seen it as well. They may not know the maker, but they'll probably know the work. Yeah. Uh, and that is Roman Boutine. Um, and he's, a, I believe, a like he's from Eastern Europe. I'm not sure if he's Russian or Ukrainian or, you know, uh, from that area. Uh, but he definitely uh, is from the, the Cyrillic states. <laughs> um, but he is a fantastically talented engraver and jeweler and he mostly specializes in working in coins making coins that have moving parts like uh you know like uh leg traps <laughs> like rabbit traps and uh un- you can unsheath a sword and use the sword to then trigger a gate which then opens to show a golden heart and all this kind of stuff that amazing pumps. yeah that's it it's amazingly detailed work in microscopic, you know, like, in microscopic detail. Like, we're talking the the size of a coin, the, the, <laughs> you know, getting all of this detail. And you look at the photos, and you it's, it's easy to forget how small the pieces are until he does a video where he shows his fingers in frame, like, mm. manipulating the piece. And you realize how small that is and how detailed it is and how much time he would have to spend... <laughs> just uh, uh, the, the uh, patience that is required and it, it is quite Im- impressive uh, how much detail he's able to get on such a small face it's like a small piece uh, and getting the mechanisms to work just insane You're, you know even this mo- more simplistic mechanisms that he's done in such a small area to try and operate a mechanism yeah incredible and uh, absolutely such incredible. a complex mechanism as well that's it. Like, you know, um, like I said, there are you know, multiple moving parts and stuff like that. And it's, it's, he's doing it all within the, the face and width of a coin. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a, a super large coin. It's a pretty standard size silver coin that he's normally using. So yeah, an incredible, uh, maker. And you can find him on Instagram under Roman Boutines, all one word, R-O-M-A-N-B-O-O-T-E-E-N. Um, he also has a backup account, which is his name, Roman Boutine, but with a dot between it. Mm. And that's his backup account. Just in case but, he gets taken down for that, you know, over-the-top coinage. Yeah, that's it. Or he gets hacked or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he has 420-odd thousand subscribers uh, on followers on Instagram, so I wouldn't be surprised if most of our listeners have already followed him on Insta. But if you haven't, go out and check his stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Who's been inspiring you, Alex? Um, well, everybody knows my love of friction folders. I think they're an incredibly underrated style of knife. I mean, you, there's very few production models that are available. Um, they're far less common than any other type of folding knife that's in the world today, despite being the OG folding knife. Um, and I've done my masterclass course on it. I've made a lot of friction folders at some of the, the best-selling types of knife that I make. And I love getting artistic with them. I love making them as beautiful as possible, just to it's sort of my way of um, getting people excited about what I think is a very practical and beautiful style of knife. Uh, and I've gotten excited in the past when Sam's done them and when we did them for the Forgecast challenge and people were making them. I, 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 I want to try and bring them back because I think they're great. And my inspiration this week is somebody who's been inspiring me for a long time with these, but just recently he has put out um, a run of some of the most singularly beautiful friction folders I have ever seen. Um, they're sort of like a hybrid friction folder and Higunakami. They're very yeah. Higunakami-inspired friction folders, but at the same time westernized quite a bit. Um, and he... Uh, his latest run uses steel from Koi Baker. All right. Um, and it's Jim Dobler out of Seekonk, Massachusetts. Uh, he goes by Dobler underscore handmade on Instagram. And um, he does the... Why I say the Higanakami um, influenced is because the the one-piece body um, that's actually folded metal, like non-ferrous metal... Um, and it's been beautifully textured and uh, domed pins on them, but he's sort of um, rough faceted doming of the pins to give it a really sort of industrial look. Um, and he's used the, uh, the stop pin method for friction folders, which I like uh, and mm -hmm. I do on my style. Not everybody does that. Um, I prefer it because it allows you greater control over the tensioning um, and a more secure open position. Um, and he's of course used Koi Baker's beautiful uh, steel selection on them and he makes even simple little belt pouches for them and they're just exquisite and his photography of them absolutely does them justice because um, yeah. there's so much going on with them so much detail in them that you just want to keep looking at it it's the sort of knife that if you pulled it out it would absolutely be a conversation piece right out Absolutely. of the gate yeah um so as somebody who tries very very hard to make the most beautiful friction folders i can he's he's just blow mine out of the water um, and he's he's done them a lot in the past as well but this recent set has just absolutely floored me each new one that came up it was like surely you can't make a better looking one and then he does um so <laughs> Yeah, Jim has um, just done incredible work, really incredible work, and he's criminally underfollowed on Instagram. So everybody that's true. Like, yeah, I was just looking at his stuff here now. He's an incredible craftsman, and yeah, very underrepresented. Yeah, because it's not just his friction folders, which are beautiful. It's it's everything that he does, from tweezers to chopsticks to cutlery to culinary knives to um, oh, everything. Kuridashi little mm -hmm. neck knives and his attention to detail is just exquisite and um yeah he's been inspiring me for a long time but those friction folders just took the cake for me 
So definitely go and check him out. Dobler underscore handmade. D-O-double-D. Uh, sorry, D-O-double-B-L-E-R underscore handmade on Instagram. Or doublerhandmade.com. So, yes. Now, we have a slew of listener emails, both through the email and through the gram. So let's dive right in and get onto those. Our first one is from Chris Hendry. And he says, Hey guys, the tips y'all provided helped a ton. I have had much better success drilling holes in metal recently. I do have another question I was hoping you could help me with. I want to make a hammer to add to my collection. I have a one pound ball peen, a fabulous 2.5 pound rounding hammer made by none other than our boy Sam. It's my favorite (laughs) and my daily user. A three pound cross peen and a four pound sledge. I want to make a 1.5 to 1.75 pound diagonal peen. How much material should I start with to end up with that weight? Also, what's the best way to temper a hammerhead? Thanks again for all you do. You guys rock. So Sam is the hammer master of the pair of us. I'll let, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you take that question. I don't know about master, but yeah. Um, so for a two pound billet out of 40 millimeter square, 1045, which is what I normally use, I cut off uh, three and a half inches of material. So if you were using a 40 millimeter billet, then you would want to cut uh, about uh, three and a quarter, maybe three inches for a 1.75, uh, 1.5 pound billet. Uh, it really will depend on your cross-sectional density. You can find, um, like there are calculators online where you can find the density of steel, just the generic density of steel per cubic centimeter or cubic inch, uh, and then just calculate uh, how many cubic inches of steel you'll need. Um, I tend to just do it by eye <laughs> and, uh, cut it and weigh it. So I'll, I, I, uh, started off by cutting like a three inch piece and then I cut a four inch piece and then I cut a five inch piece, weighed each individually and then figured out where I wanted to, to cut for what weight. Um, but yeah, you, you can actually calculate it using an online calculator for steel density per cubic inch and then just uh, extrapolating that. It's easier if you're using square stock than round stock to calculate that kind of stuff, but again, you can calculate the volume of a cylinder. Um, it's just pi r squared times the length. So, mm. yeah. There you go. And tempering it? Uh, and as far as tempering temperature goes, I use uh, around 220 to 240 degrees Celsius. Looking for a brown um, sure. color. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but you, you're wanting around, like, 54 to 56 Rockwell, thereabouts. Um, you want it uh, fairly hard, like, you know, in 1045, that's what, you, what you're going to get. You're going to get between 54 and 56. In 4140, you're probably going to max out at about 52, 54 uh, at the very maximum. So, yeah, it will depend on what material you're using. But if you're using 1045... About to 220, 250 Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. I haven't got the calculator in front of me right now. Um, but yeah, uh, that'll that'll do the job for you. Well, that's the temperature, but what's the best way to temper it? The best way is stick it in an oven. Yeah? Not put the <laughs> heated drift through the eye? No, like... Uh, I you mean, like to soften your cheeks, don't you? 
I I used to. Uh, I I did used to. These days I don't bother. Uh, I did a bunch of testing, and the reason I used to soften the cheeks is because I was afraid that because it was such a thin cross-section there, comparative, mm -hmm. uh, it would be more likely to fracture. But the reality is, is that after like heating and heat treating and tempering uh, a hammer in the oven, I then took a sledge to the cheeks um, with the rounding face of a 10-pound sledgehammer, uh, using it on my anvil to try and break the cheeks, and I couldn't get it to do I couldn't get it to do it. Mm. Um, at like 50, at, at that 54 uh, to 56 Rockwell, it will bend before it breaks. Unless you've got really bad grain structure, in which case you're not doing your hardening properly. Frangas non flectors. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. But, um, yeah, no, uh, you can do the heated drift thing. Uh, I used to do, like, a blowtorch on the cheeks and just let the colors run. Um, but it's, it takes so long. It's so much easier to just stick it in an oven for two hours. <laughs> there you go. Uh, thanks for writing in, Chris. Our next email comes from Jason Hostetler. Says, hi guys, love the show, and a couple of your shows got me wondering about a few things. First, Mokumagane. I was wondering if you could use aluminium and copper to make it, or does it have to be copper, zinc, brass, gold, and silver? Next question is, I hear a lot of people smelting aluminium with copper to make aluminium bronze, and it got me wondering what other kinds of things can be combined to make new types of metals that would be useful in knife making or other areas. Really looking forward to what I will learn from you two next. Keep doing what you do. Love your rants. Or oh, you're going to you're going to like today's topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I will I'll start off and say that I don't think it's possible to bond aluminium and copper. I don't think they bond. No. Uh, because aluminium, the, the thing about aluminium is it's incredibly reactive. It almost instantaneously oxidizes when, um, you know, exposed to oxygen, which is why um, getting aluminium to weld and look like a TIG welder is really difficult. And um, that's why it looks terrible as a guard material, because it, it looks all <laughs> lovely and shiny and beautiful when you first have it polished, but then you leave it for half an hour. And it goes grey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing is, of course, that aluminium melts at a much lower temperature than copper, like mm. ridiculously low um, compared to copper. It's so about I, a three hundred degree difference between the two yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. So you, I, I just don't think the disparity in temperature would be allow would allow molecular bonding at that stage, and then the oxidization layer. I don't know how you'd manage to block the aluminium from oxidizing, and I don't know of many fluxes that would work in that instance because you'd be working at so such a low temperature. Mm. And then forging it would be a massive pain because aluminium, quite popular, like you know, uh, quite famously, is really difficult to forge because it granulates really badly. Mm. Um, as far as mixing alloys to make other alloys, the possibilities are relatively endless. Um, I, Not all of instance, them are useful, though. <laughs> no. I mean, uh, for instance, I've made brass and bronze, and I've made some Nordic gold. I've made bronze and Nordic gold for Alex, actually, um, that I sent him pieces. Uh, and you can make various, uh, you know, kind of percentage alloys of that. Like, I sent him some 15% bronze, which is 15% tin, uh, to the rest copper. Uh, Nordic gold is actually a form of aluminium bronze, but it also contains tin and zinc um, in the mix. Um, the you know, brass is just standard zinc normally, but 
Uh, you can add things like arsenic and lead and stuff like that to make it more machinable. Uh, there is, you know, free machining brass, but then there's also maritime brass, which is an entirely different uh, feeling material. Like, it works completely differently, but it is still a brass. Mm. I also work in things like Shibuichi, which is a mixture of silver and copper. Um, you know, not like, um, not unlike sterling silver, which is, uh, normally about 0.75% co- uh, copper. In Shibuichi, it's more like, um, 40% silver to 60% copper and lower amounts of, um, copper because you're looking for the silvery color in Japanese, uh, methods. There's also, uh, things like shakudo, which are a mixture of, uh, copper and gold. And sharks. That, uh, and, sh- and sharks. Shakudo is um, is used mostly in Japanese inlay, which is something that I'm practicing. Uh, and when patinated using the Rockshaw method, uh, turns black. Like, it turns like an indigo, purple, black kind of color. Um, Both and yes, yeah, so, Oh, well, I mean, if you want to spend the money... Cheaper than gold. Uh, I, well, you got to buy gold to make it. <laughs> Um, I, I'm looking to make a, a 40 grand billet of it. It's going to cost me $200 in gold. Hmm. Um, so it's not, it's not cheap. <laughs> it's really not cheap, but, um, yeah, no, the, as far as non-ferrous metals go, you can mix pretty much all of them, uh, to create various alloys. Some of them are more fractal, uh, fractal than others. And different, um, different th- additives, um, give it different properties. Like, yep. you know, bismuth will make it have a lower melting point, for example. Um, there's yes. little little differences in really the, the metallurgy of, of, of casting and, and alloy forming is um, a whole topic on its own. You, there are many books about it. Uh, people have been That's doing a deep the, rabbit hole. People have been mixing together things and wondering what's going to happen for a long time and documented the process. <laughs> But uh, as Sam said, the the possibilities are endless and fun, but also dangerous. Mm -hmm. So be careful. Yes, be very careful. (laughs) Don't try not to play with the heavy metals. Don't breathe anything that steams off the top. No. (laughs) Wear your respirator. Our next message comes from Craig, and he says, Hey, you two, in the past on the show, you've commented that traditionally Japanese blacksmiths Oh, oh, sorry, bladesmiths only ever quenched in water. But you've also mentioned that water quenching is super aggressive and can lead to micro fractures. Where is the line and what did Japanese smiths do to mitigate this? Is it to do with the clay they used or did they heat to lower temperatures before quench to reduce the shock? Love the show. Look forward each week to the episodes. Craig, it's an interesting question. Thanks for the question, Craig. Yeah, it's, it is an interesting question. Uh, and the, the, the very basic answer is they didn't do anything <laughs> to change it. So that's not entirely true. Uh, in traditional uh, yakiire, which is uh, heat treating of um, like katana and tanto and stuff like that, um, they the, this thin layer of slip that is put on before the main uh, hamon layer is put on uh, increases the surface area of the steel, which increases the speed at which the steel cools. Um, but also insulates it somewhat, um, and it, it's a very contradictory, and there's a lots of theories surrounding it, but I have, you know, in personal experience found that it, it does help with water quenches uh, to have it, even if you don't have a hormone line uh, of clay on it, having a thin layer of slip for water quenches is actually quite useful. Hmm. 
they would also preheat their water to about 40 degrees to 50 degrees um just enough that in cool in a cool room they would see steam rising that was something that they actually aimed for was to see the steam rise in a cool room it's in it's in a bunch of like texts and stuff and obviously it was all written in poetry <laughs> so <it's, laughs> um but no one of the things that uh, isn't often discussed is that uh katana like uh bladesmiths would lose one out of every three blades they forged hmm. um in the quench they would just crack so um yeah the, <laughs> uh the water quenches are incredibly tough on steel and especially when you're dealing with such a a very strong reaction in katana given that you know they're keeping they're trying the spine to get that soft. bend yeah yeah um you're you're asking for problems and so yeah uh some of the sources that I've read have said that, yeah, between one in four and one in three, uh, break in the quench. So, um, yeah, take with that what you will. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe uh, yeah. don't just go dipping your 1084 in water. <laughs> the, the thing the thing to understand there is that it wasn't necessarily that they used water because it was the best option. They used water was because it was the only option. Um there wasn't really a ready access to large amounts of oil at that stage that could just be freely used to quench blades in. Any oil that was being collected was normally food oil um, and, and, and was being used to eat. And there were no redheads to get the, the urine from. That's it. And um, <laughs> even in Europe, like in, in, you know, in early medieval Europe, quenching in water was pretty much the only way that quenching was done. Uh, and you've got to remember that most of the steels in that day were, you know, 1060. That You know, they, they were in that 0. 0.6, 0. 0.5 range for swords and knives and all that kind of stuff. They were actually relatively medium or low carbon steels comparative to what we have today. And that was because of the way they were refined. But uh, that meant that they were le less... Uh, they had less stress when they were quenched in water than you would if you were using something like a hyper-eutectoid steel like W2 or uh, 1095 or something like that. Um, and yeah, it was it was just because it was the ready option. It wasn't popular to quench in oil until uh, the early industrial period, like we're talking 1800s, uh, and that was quite common to use whale oil whale at, the, oil, at yeah. that point. Or just yeah, whale fat. It was, yeah, because yeah. it was plentiful. Uh, you know, whaling was, was quite a popular, uh, popular thing. Whale oil was... Uh, quite readily available in most of Europe so and there are plenty of sea shanties about it oh indeed soon may the wellerman come that's right uh, <laughs> but Although that uh, was yeah, New no, Zealand yeah it was but it was still whaling yeah it's true <laughs> but um yeah no the, the the thing is at the end of the day oil wasn't used in quenching uh blades and stuff like that until much much later in in period we're talking 1770 and, and beyond uh, before that, water was the only uh, thing that they could use because they didn't have access to anything else. But you really need industrialization to um, be able to produce large quantities of oil. Um, you need that sort of mechanization of the process because it's difficult to make oil. If you've ever tried making it yourself, it's, it's a lot <laughs> yeah. of work. <laughs> even you know, even stuff like uh, olive oil, which is you know more readily extractable than others, it's still a pain in the butt. Mm. And um, not to mention that most of the oils that they had back then were very slow speed oils. They were very thick, viscous oils. And so wouldn't have provided a hardness, you know, that would be decent for most of the steels that they were using. 
uh, where water would. Uh, and it wasn't until much later that they started developing hardening oils, which were much faster in their quench rates. Mm. Uh, and now we have stuff like Parks 50 and Horton's K, which, you know, give us incredibly fast quench rates. Yeah. Uh, interesting question, interesting answer. Yeah, thanks for the question. And our next two questions come from the same person who got caught up in the fact that we record our episodes a week in advance. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so sorry David <laughs> his first question was hey hey I have a question that I'm hoping you can help me out with what is the best way to wax a blade either with axe wax or renaissance wax without a buffer whenever I try to put a light coat of wax on to protect the blade I end up with streaks running down the blade help that is a very common problem mm. And uh, the way I found to fix that is, A, use a very finely woven soft cotton cloth for application. Uh, Don't use paper towel or anything that has ridges in it, because that will lead to lines. And warm your blade first. Mm, Uh, Either with a heat gun or a hairdryer or even over a stove. Just get it warm so that the wax melts. I actually melt the wax. I I apply it with my finger, uh, but I rub Mm. it between my index finger and thumb to get it warm, and you'll notice it gets thinner. And then I wipe it on the blade, and then I use a fine cloth to sort of massage it in and and, uh, make it even. Yeah, and then let it fully harden. Like, let it harden and cure for about an hour, and then come back and buff it with that cotton cloth. Buff it really energetically and you'll polish out any irregularities most of the time and depending on the climate you're in that actual full hardening process can take a surprisingly long amount of time yeah i was always told that renaissance wax hardens really quickly but Mm. you know in high humidity i've found that it can take up to an hour two hours to harden properly I'll, i'll go you one better down here i've had it not harden for over a day oh there you go because it's, it's mostly hardened, but you can still feel slight tackiness, and you think, you know, screw it, I'll leave it overnight, and you come back in the next morning, and you can feel it's hard, um, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow. Yeah, I was Rena- not Renaissance wax. Yeah, Renaissance wax specifically gets glass hard, like mm. it does not feel tacky. Yeah. If your wax feels tacky when you're using Renaissance wax, it's not hardened yet. Yeah, and it can take a it can take a long time. Prepare for it to take a long time. Yeah, especially in cold weather. You guys over in the, the States are uh, getting into winter now. So, mm-hmm. so uh, David then emailed again. <laughs> he says, hello again. I have a customer wanting me to make him a do-it-all farm knife. He wants to be able to chop through small branches, saw through larger branches, and even be used to hammer if need be. He also wants a D-guard on it to protect his knuckles. Wow, this is wild. Um, <laughs> I have forged out the guard and just finished filing the tang holes. Uh, I am planning to have an ironwood handle, and I'll rivet the tang over in the final construction to become a pommel to hammer with. Okay. I've attached a picture of what I have so far for you guys to take a look at, and for Sam's benefit, since he can't see the Instagram, um, it looks like a sawback knife with a D-guard. It's quite good. It's, <laughs> very, very specific, yeah. It's quite good. Um, but he says, my question is about the sawback spine. What is the best geometry that I'm looking for when filing in the saw teeth? I want them to cut as best as possible, but I'm not sure what shape to give the teeth. Sorry for the long question. I really appreciate your blacksmithing and knife making wisdom, David Penn. So he's got basic, like, 45 degree angled slots. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. that won't cut very well. No. Um, first you, thing... You actually... First you want thing angled cross-cut yeah. teeth. Yeah, I would actually be on um, every second tooth from one side, I would file in at an angle, and then you flip the blade over, and every opposite tooth, you'd file in at an angle so that actually uh, each tooth gets a chance to hit the work mm-hmm. as it's going through. That would be the first thing I would do. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at a normal saw, uh, a normal saw has the teeth set, so it has each individual, each uh, second tooth is set off to the left or right, uh, and they alternate, and that provides a kerf for the blade to pass through, because obviously if the teeth are all in a line, uh, then the thickness of the body of the saw binds, so they need to be wider than the blade. In, in a knife, you can have a fully flat ground knife, which means that there's, uh, you know, a cur- the, the kerf will allow the rest of the blade to pass through, but then you need an aggressive tooth because you've got quite a large contact surface. Like, your blade thickness is probably going to be, I'm guessing, quarter of an inch or so, given that it's a chopper. Mm. Um, a quarter of an inch is a very wide, like, a very thick saw blade, if you're thinking about saw blades. So having a much more aggressive tooth pattern, like those cross-cut teeth that you're going to see... Um, I would actually look at uh, some engineers' briquette sabers from the uh, Napoleonic era. They had sawbacks. They were designed, uh, sometimes called pioneer swords. They had sawbacks, and they were basically exactly what you're describing. They They're, asked. They, were, they got asked to make one of those on Fortune Fire once. They did. Yeah. Um. It was. It, they had brass, solid brass hilts. Um. They were de-guarded. They had. You know. They were able to chop. And they had a sawback. Um, the only thing they were missing was a, a hammer pommel. But given that the whole hilt was brass, I'm pretty sure you could hammer with that. If you, you just really punch to. with the D gun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Like basically, you're just describing a pioneer sword um, in my mind. Mm. Um, so yeah, just a little bit more of an aggressive tooth, and just make sure you've got that that nice full flat grind, so that you allow the uh, the kerf to have the blade pass through. Otherwise, it's just going to bind in the cut. Yeah, that'll be it. So um, that is the last email, which brings us in to tool time. Tool time. And tool time this week is tantalizing the airwaves thanks to the most epic knife-making supply company in Australia who also ships internationally, Nordic Edge. Next time you're stocking up on goodies for your knife-making shenanigans, be sure to visit nauticedge.com.au first. And this week, our tool of the week is stop blocks or hardy blocks. or There's all sorts of different names for them. Edge blocks, whatever you want to call them, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a tiny anvil hat for your anvil. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, they are an incredibly simple but also very, very useful uh, piece of equipment for the forge. Hmm. I was actually using one just today because my uh, I have a hardy bolster plate which doubles as a stop block. Um, and basically when you're needing to hammer something in a, such a way that it would slide around on your anvil, you can actually press it up against the hardy stop block and it can't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I've used, um, I've used wooden stop blocks against my hot cut because I <laughs> didn't have anything else. So I'd put the hot cut in there to stop the wood from sliding and then I'd use the wood as my stop block uh, against the anvil face, uh, <laughs> especially to turn uh, like arrowhead... Um, arrowhead... Uh, Shafts. Yeah, the, the sockets. Sockets, that one. God, my brain. <laughs> but yeah, the sockets. Uh, <laughs> 
But they can also um, act as a nice little uh, sort of like a drop, like a shoulder, if your anvil doesn't um, isn't possessed with one. Or you can have, because they're usually a square pattern, they can have different radii around them. Um, yeah, quite famously, uh, a guy I keep referring to on this show apparently recently, uh, Joey Vandersteeg, <laughs> uh, quite regularly uses an, uh, a hardy anvil block for various radii. Um, and he also uses it because you can have a much narrower face. Like, if you're trying to forge on a piece between two setdowns that is narrower than your anvil face, then you, you could use the anvil block, which is slightly narrower again. Uh, to be able to have a supporting surface underneath your um, your forging, if you don't have something like a square horn, yeah, we really need to try and reach out to him to come on the show again. We we were in talks with him, but then he got really busy because it was right when you know the world started going a bit wild. Yeah, no, he got he got hit with like the rest of us, and uh, yeah, we kind of lost touch. So we'll definitely have to get get back on him. Yeah, let him know that his name has become a verb. <laughs> we'll have to, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, definitely think of adding one of these to your collection. I know we've been doing a lot of hardy tools um, for a tool of the week lately, but it's for good reason. We want to try and get you guys tooled up. And these are things that you can easily make yourself, especially yeah. you know, even if you don't have an anvil that has a hardy hole, uh, you can use hardy shanked tooling in a post vise. Yeah, or you can uh, cut a hole in a stump um, <laughs> and bolt a, a metal plate to it. Like, um, I saw recently, I can't remember where it was, but I saw recently a guy who'd literally four drywall screws into the top of a, uh, a stump that he drilled a big hole in. He just uh, screwed a, a mild steel plate that he'd cut a square hole in and used that as his hardy tool holder. Yeah, there you go. Um, because his anvil was just a like a sledgehammer head. <laughs> so, well, it's it's a bit like um, Rune Bertram Nielsen's treadle hammer. It has yeah, an interchangeable exactly. place. It's the same sort of system. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So. And Rune puts that to great use. He does. Uh, not only in the treadle hammer, but also in his little uh, seated Look, forge area. I love that thing. Yeah, me too. But um, yeah, no excuse not to have hardy tools, guys. So we want you to I want you to know the the range that's out there. So, do it. Um, do it. Now you've uh, you've been waiting for it. Topic of the week is a bit of a rant. Mm. I got to say it. It's a bit of a rant. You, you, you only need to put down the goddamn books and pick it <laughs> and pick up a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I have. Um, I, I, everybody has dealt with this. Uh, I know Sam's dealt with it. Uh, I, I've mm. dealt with it. Uh, usually, you, you you start having projects that you just end up having negative associations with because of the amount of this sort of thing you get and that's neck bearding people like to um, tell you you're doing something wrong and you can tell that the person that's telling you that has never actually tried doing the thing that you're doing but they've probably read about it you know read read a book somewhere and theoretical knowledge is good we advocate reading those books and learning the why and learning the theory and understanding what you're doing but until you actually pick up the tooling and start trying to do it yourself, you really can't comment on what other people are doing just based on book knowledge. Because, as I think it was Napoleon once said, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Indeed. Book knowledge will only get you so far. Yeah, and I mean, uh, for, for me specifically, a lot of what I know comes from books. Like, you know, you guys all know I'm the theory nerd, I'm the steel guy, I really like reciting shit that I've read from relatively obscure fucking manuals from 
50, 60 years ago. But that's not to say that I haven't experimented with all of the things that I'm talking about. And Mm. if I haven't, I will, you know, I will express that. I will tell people that I have not done this myself. Um, Because there is a a distinct dichotomy between practical experience and theoretical experience. And while uh, some of what we do, especially metallurgically, is hard scientific fact, right? Like temperatures, times, all that kind of stuff is hard you know, unresolvable fact that you, you know, you can't argue with, there is the argument that um, that has to be the way that it is done is complete nonsense. Mm. Alex has proven time and time again that relatively simplistic heat treating methods can get a usable result. Perhaps not the best result, like the absolute pinnacle, but able, usable, able to practical. withstand some extreme torture. Exactly. Usable, practical result that uh, that provides every bit of service that it needs to be and reliability and all that kind of stuff without having to sacrifice time and money for a setup that he just can't afford. Most of us can't afford. I'd love a Paragon Um, if you guys are listening. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Paragon. Sponsor us. Yeah. Um, But yeah, the, the thing is that, like, at the end of the day, I can talk about, like holding temperature at certain temperatures and, you know, doing all of the treatments that I talk about. But if you can find a method that works to give you a result that you're happy with, then that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad way to do things. Um, It's the same with any technique. If you can find a way to do something that achieves the result, doesn't matter what the books say. (laughs) I nearly had a guy hit me once. Um, Yeah. he, He gave me the, I've been doing this for 30 years thing and i told Uh him i said to him congratulations on not learning anything new for 30 years and he nearly (laughs) hit me (laughs) oh and and it's sad because it is sometimes those people it's the people who've been doing it for a really long time a very specific way and they're very set in their ways because that's what they're used to uh and therefore they don't believe that it should be done any other way because that's the way that they were taught Mm. um and yeah, it is, it's gatekeeping, it's neckbearding, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's just toxic because it doesn't help anyone. People love to armchair warrior from, from the sidelines when people like, you know, Sam and I, many of it, you guys listening at home, many of the people that we talk about on our inspirations of the week, they're out there in the weeds doing this stuff real time, making mistakes, learning, figuring stuff out trying stuff trying to push the envelope coming up with new stuff experimenting and they're doing it they're getting their hands grubby and they're getting cuts and 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 bleed literally bleeding for their work and then somebody who's literally never forged in their life but have watched every season of forged in fire will pull out the keyboard and it's like oh i didn't that doesn't look like you got it to the right temperature for the quench you know Actually, if you're going to make that sort of comment, you've got to actually have tried to do it yourself. Because, yeah. it, it, I mean, as soon as you're actually in the heat of it and you've been working, you know, 60 hours that week and you're going to quench a blade, it's gonna, if it's going to work, it's going to work. And it doesn't have to be perfect. No. And, like, it, I see it a lot in um, kind of parallel uh, hobbies to ours welding <laughs> mm, that's like r- rule 76 of the internet you can't yeah. put welding up without it being critiqued no welding and machining right yeah. like you you watch and you follow any instagram account of a welder or an ins- or an instagram machinist 
And the comments are just full of complete neckbeards mm-hmm. telling them, oh, no, you didn't lay that down right. Oh, you were walking the cup. You're not allowed to walk the cup. Oh, no, you got the wrong speeds and feeds. Oh, no, you got to... <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta crank this at that certain torque value, and and you, you watch the video, and it's like it's doing it perfectly. Yeah, right. Like the 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 thing that they're doing is working mm-hmm. perfectly. The tensile strength is all great. It's all fine. Shut up. <laughs> I actually I had a moment with Broden today because um, he was struggling with the welder. Because he, I, I, I can use a MIG welder. I've got a MIG welder. I never use mm-hmm. it. I love stick welding. Um, but Broden welds brilliantly at his work all the time using a, a gassed MIG welder, which no, is... anyone can weld well with a gassed MIG. Yeah, and he does really nice welding, but when it comes to the stick welder, he's very unpracticed, and he was really struggling with it, and I just walked over and, and I, I did the weld for him, and he goes, oh, that's really nice. We'll make a welder out of you yet. And I'm like, no, I can weld quite well. It's just... I don't have to do things not well that are nice. Uh, like mm-hmm. most of the time, it's like I, I'll just do the concrete drop test, and if it hell holds, then great. <laughs> and the thing is, if I were to have posted that weld onto the internet, it would have been ripped apart. Oh, you got to make it look like stacked coins. No, it has to hold together and do the job. That's all I give a damn about. The amount of times that I've had comments on a photo of a pre-stacked Damascus billet that I've just roughly tacked together, sometimes by literally just putting my hand over my eyes and touching the fucking arc to it, right? And they're like, oh, those welds don't look like they'll hold. And I'm like, they're not designed to. That's right. (laughs) You know, I don't don't care. As long as it sticks, I don't care. And um, even when it comes to designs, like some of the comments and messages I got about the Viking sword not being historically accurate, Jesus, yeah. the customer liked it. Or the the, yeah, and- the, the rune that I put on the, the sacks, um, the customer requested it. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> no, and, and the thing is that it's, it's one thing to see someone advertising something. Like, if you'd been saying, this is a historically accurate... Yeah. Viking sword, right? Like, if you'd been posting on Instagram going, hey, look at my, you know, reproduction, you know, 10th century Viking sword, then people would be, you know, rightful in going, well, no, that's Mm. not historically accurate. But you were just saying, here's a Viking-style sword that I made. Yeah. (laughs) It's like in the first vlog, I said, I'm not aiming to make something historically accurate. I'm aiming to make something that if I went back in time and handed it to a Viking, they'd be like, this is sweet. (laughs) <laughs> you know like and and you know you can have the argument of it's not a real viking sword because it wasn't made in scandinavia actually it's just a sparkling sword <laughs> that's um, right <laughs> anyone who doesn't get that reference i'm sorry um but yeah no it, it it does become this this kind of need for superiority i find the people people want to push their glasses up on the bridge of their nose and go well actually actually yeah. Um, and I, I fucking hate it because it, all it does is a, a beginner or even a, an experienced person like myself gets those comments and it feeds that little doubt gremlin in the back of your mm-hmm. head that's always there. Like we were discussing earlier, there's always that doubt in the back of your head that you're actually doing the right thing or that mm. you're actually um, good at what you do. That that little imposter syndrome there. And it just feeds it. <laughs> it just goes, yeah, maybe maybe you are wrong. Um, and it, it kills creativity 
Yeah. Because it means it's like, oh, I'm not going to touch a welder now because I don't want to be critiqued on it. Um, and the thing is, like, everybody gets guilty of it from time to time. And it, it takes a bit of introspection to be able to... Like, who hasn't watched Forged and Fire and been yelling at the screen like, oh, go, don't go for the water, but oh, he's got into the water. Oh, what a <laughs> moron. Every every time I watch a Forged and Fire episode, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't do that. And mm, while, no, that's not how I would do it. And while, yes... Some of our listeners have been on Forged in Fire and have every right to be able to do that. And I know them. <laughs> Most yep. of you guys have never been in that situation, which is about as adverse a forging conditions as you can possibly get. I, I can't even imagine. Like, you know, I can I can try and put my brain to the the feeling that they would have being in that situation with all of those forges running and the cameras going and all I the lights. I can tell you what, I could be in an air-conditioned, fil- like air-filtered <laughs> workshop um, under just normal lighting with my own equipment and all the time in the world to finish a project, but Jay Nielsen staring at me while I work and I'd still <laughs> fuck up. 100%. 100%. <laughs> And, and the thing is, like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If you're sitting there screaming at the screen, that's fine. What we're talking about is when people take that to the public, right? Yeah, like, if it. you were to go out there and start commenting on all of these makers' stuff, going, Oh, you should have done this, you should have done that. That's when you become the asshole, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't have an issue with you having opinions. I have an issue with you sharing it with everyone else. You have a right to your opinion, but you also have a right to keep it to yourself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I, I do a lot of things that are not technically the right way to do things, and I do them publicly, but they work. Yeah. And Can't argue with the results. That's it. If they didn't work, I wouldn't do them. And that's it. I mean, this is what I do for my living. And so to all of those people, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I let it get to me for a while. Um because I'm a massive metallurgy nerd, right? Like, I'm always chasing perfect. I'm always chasing the best. Mm. And it was stopping me from doing my job because I was like, I don't have a heat-controlled kiln. I don't have, you know, a molten salt bath and all this kind of stuff. I don't have the setup to properly get perfect heat treatment every time. And what I was discounting was the fact that I have previously got heat treats that were capable of passing the ABS test. Made out of leaf spring made out of leaf spring just based on my knowledge and based on the knowledge of the forge that i have and all that kind of stuff i have been able to get practical results for years Mm. (laughs) and the fact that i was chasing perfection was killing me um and actually it's something i came across recently which is the the 70 rule which is uh i'm a perfectionist and i'm always chasing perfect which is impossible and so instead i now chase 70 percent of perfect Right, if I can do it like just good enough to get over that halfway mark, normally it's way better than I actually expect. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah, like you know, I'm slowly building my kit to to get better heat treatments. Like I have the the Don Fog kiln and stuff like that now. But if I was to just stop until I had the kit, I'd never get the kit because I wouldn't make enough money to actually buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, don't don't let it slow you down and don't fall into that hole of trying to tell people exactly what they should do if they're getting results. If they're not getting results, then by all means encourage them to try something different, but don't tell them that they're wrong. Yeah. Because you won't get anyone to listen to you by being a dick. That's it. And words to live by. <laughs> 
Now, um, guys, Forgecast challenge is done now. You guys really nailed it with the, the bolts turning into things. There's some, oh, man, I loved some of the entries. Some of the great. entries were great. Um, I wanted to give... Um, I, I wish I could shout out everybody, but a lot of people entered. Um, I'd like to um, shout out Brian Kincannon. He did a flux yep. spoon with a skull on the end of it. And like a very cool, like a cube twist. It, it, just, oh, it looked awesome. Um, Jonathan Spencer did this really cool, like Triffid sculpture. Yeah, that was that was pretty pretty trippy. Yeah, very trippy. Um, I really quite liked it. It kind of reminded me of Day of the Triffids. Maybe yeah. I may maybe showing my age there. Mm, um, a little bit. And uh, Chris Hendry, who actually emailed in on, um, yeah. with a question, um, he's the American warrior forge um and he did a wand a really cool looking wand yeah Um, really good looking yeah it it was really like at first it looks really um like straightforward but then you look closer and you see all these little details and shapes and things and i I really quite liked it yeah i'd also like to shout out wendell bud white he hasn't completely finished it yet but he was making a socketed like walking stick head Mm. out of a bolt i'm keen to see how that turns out the socket's super clean, like really clean. Uh, so I'm I'm keen to see that one come out because I, I really like walking sticks. So you know, I thought he was um, doing a, a, a pipe hawk with it just to be sassy. <laughs> so was I. When I, saw, when I saw the flare, I was like, "Is he making another pipe hawk?" Hey Wendell, if you hear this before you finish it, you need to make the walking cane into a giant, like long pipe hawk. Yeah, it's a pole axe at that point. Yeah, it's a church warden <laughs> pipe hawk yeah perfect um actually isn't there like the, the shepherd's axe like um john at black bear forge made yeah yeah i want to make much. one of those pretty it'd be cool. handy for bushwalks mm. so um yeah but we that that was just a, a challenge just to keep your your whistles wetted um, we are moving on now to a new competition, and this is once again sponsored by Ryan at Otway Fiddleback. So check him out on Instagram, Otway underscore Fiddleback, and he is putting up prizes again. And it's a first, second, and third prize deal, same as last time. Three blocks for first, two blocks for second, and one block for third. However, this time, mystery blocks. They're going to be handle blocks that you don't know what they're going to be, but they're going to be excellent because they're from Otway Fiddleback. Um, so what are we challenging you to do we put out a poll on the instagram asking do we give you guys a break after the exceptionally difficult last challenge or do we kick it up a notch and as much as a lot of people voted uh to give you guys a break i'm sorry to say but 68 percent of you wanted us to kick it up a notch so we decided to go for something that you could you could kick it up a notch if you wanted to, or you could take it easy. Because on the surface, this is an easy project. But remember, we want to see your best foot forward. And I wanted to see you make something that's a little bit more practical this time. Pipe hawks are cool. They're very cool. <laughs> Not a really practical thing. So we want you to make a beautiful, underlined, italicized, beautiful set of wood carving tools like a matched set um now in order to qualify they have to be functional and i'd like to actually see that they are functional 
And they, the set must include at least, just at least, a Warncliffe whittling knife, a spoon gouge, and a bowl carving knife. If you want to choose to add other items to the set, that is entirely up to you, but they must all match and show us that they work. And now you have two months to do this. It's actually lining up perfectly with Sam's competition, so you'll there you go. have plenty to do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if you want wood, you can uh, get into this competition. If you want, uh, <laughs> if you want engraving equipment or a hammer, you can get in on mine. Yeah, so you've got you've or got, get in both. You could win both. Yeah, you've got two months to do this. This is going until the end of the year. So I'm just checking my calendar now. Um, yeah, the 31st is when a Forgecast is going to be coming out. So this will be announced, the winners of this will be announced on 7th of January. There you go. You have until the 30th, end of uh, midnight. You have until New Year's. When the fireworks go pop, <laughs> the doors close. Uh, so, yeah. Funnily so, enough, it's the same time for the entries for mine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, a matched, beautiful set of wood carving knives now once again it must include at least a Warncliffe whittling knife which is just a standard carving knife a spoon gouge and a bowl carving knife and they must all work and we want to see it don't care what you do with it to show us that they work but I want to see that they work and I want them to be beautiful so I'm actually going to be participating in this one even though I can't win I want to make a set I'm going to make something. Yeah, I might, I might, I might throw together a set myself because you know I, I make wood wood carving tools anyway. <laughs> Frank, so. frankly, it is one of the great joys of life to sit there properly whittling, properly carving, yeah. making like green wood spoons and things. It's it's one of those little joys that a lot of people don't realize just how much fun it is. I actually just sold the last of my Sloyd knives today, so <laughs> there you go. I needed to restock anyway. So. Um, yeah, this, this, this is something that you can sell for a pretty penny if you make it nice enough. A, oh, yeah. a pretty penny. The the demand is always there. So take this take this as an opportunity to show us what you got, but also, you know, make a good buck. And win some potentially win some beautiful Otway fiddleback timber. Mm. So yes. It may maybe maybe a, a wooden block. It may be something else, but it's it's going to be something spectacular from Ryan. And um, yeah, he never disappoints. No, he, he's he's not letting us even us know what it is that the prizes are going to be yet. It's just going to be handle blocks. So yeah, it's going to be something cool. Whenever he's cagey like that, you know it's going to be something cool. <laughs> yep. Um, but that's about it, guys. Thanks for emailing in. If you guys have questions about blacksmithing or bladesmithing or anything like that, then send it along to ask.forgecast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media or on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're looking for Sam... You can find me at Samtown's Bladesmith on Instagram, Facebook, Etsy, Patreon, YouTube, Redbubble, Twitch, The Kitchen Sink... Where can they find you out? I go by Valhalla Ironworks in all the same places except for the kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah, there's not room enough for the both of us. That's right. The sink ain't big enough for the both of us. <laughs> yes. Alright guys, you have a good one. Catch you later guys, we'll see you next week. Bye!
金秀。